Welcome back to the Prairie Pod. We are super excited to offer you part two of our Invasive Species Support Group so that you can still feel supported and have some helpful tips and tricks and, I don't know, just contribute to your overall well-being. Just breathe deep. Take deep breaths. We'll get through these invasive species together. Yes. We will get through them together. It's important to have a family in conservation, a family of folks working together for the prairie. You know, maybe I should just quickly review, and, and especially if a, if a listener didn't hear part A of this of this theme. Absolutely. I love that uh, you're calling it part A and I'm calling it part one. That's not confusing at all <laughs> for our listeners. Part A1? Part A and part um, one are the same, which aired last week, just so everybody knows. Go ahead, Mike. Give us the overview. I, yeah, I was just going to say I was I I was initially uncertain as to why whether we should have two episodes uh, focused on this topic. Now I'm totally convinced we should have like a whole season focused on this topic. Like it's, it's just super relevant, super important to managers and interesting to think and talk about. Um, Absolutely. And so we've got kind of a progression for you. So last time we talked through this concept of rest is death, which talks about the importance of mixing your management up. And it's not saying mm-hmm. that you should never rest the prairie. Right. It's just right. saying that in the bigger scheme of the prairie landscape, they are disturbance-based habitats. Yep. And then yes. Rhett, who Mike wished was his <laughs> botanical instructor, his botany, botany instructor, <laughs> went over some of the plant biology and why these C4 and C3 pathways make a difference when you're trying to control Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome. And then Dustin talked about a particular management strategy for smooth brome, which is hay management. So you should check that out. Last week, mm-hmm. it's up on our website, mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. Now we are going to hear, so for those of you who didn't hear how we're doing this, it's similar to our holiday episode where we pre-recorded these mini interviews with our fantastic guests. And so we're just going to introduce them to give you some context. And then you'll hear the interview that we had with those folks. So we're going to start out with Sarah Vosick who's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service out of the Morris Wetland Management District in, unsurprisingly, Morris, Minnesota. And so she is going to talk about some super important themes. First, she's going to back us up that diversity in your management, both in the timing of your management, how frequent your management is, and the type of management you're doing are super duper important. And she's going to talk about a particular aspect of timing, how to time your management so that you are most impactful and effective on these two prairie beasts. And I don't mean beasts in a good way. I mean, these two, oh, that's a terrible, that's a terrible insult to beasts everywhere. These two prairie and non-native invasive species, Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome. I'm the wildlife biologist with the Morris Wetland Management District, which is part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Morris, Minnesota. Do you have a last name? Vosick, Sarah Vosick. I'm a wildlife biologist <laughs> with the Fish and Wildlife Service. I work at the Morris Wetland Management District, West Central Minnesota. Perfect. Tell welcome, us a little Sarah. bit. Yeah, welcome. Welcome back, Sarah. Thanks. And tell us a little bit about um, some successes that you've had with either Kentucky bluegrass or brome. Or, or not necessarily successes, Megan, right? This is a therapy session. This is all about honesty <laughs> yeah, We're here, here to support you. So so maybe exactly. even some failures, you know, things you wish you could have done differently. Just tell us your story. We're, here to, we're ha- here to support you. Right. Well, so my job as the biologist at my office is to do our to run our inventory and monitoring program so what i have is less of a management story and more of a monitoring to help us make management decisions story perfect sense right right up mike's alley there right absolutely and you're gonna love this megan too but my sort of take home as i was thinking about this getting ready and thinking about the things that we've learned over the last decade of doing a bunch of monitoring in prairies is that as we often realize when we're thinking about this stuff, there's no silver bullet to fixing your brome problem or your bluegrass problem. And just like you're always preaching diversity and reconstructions and diversity in prairie, I think my take home message for people is that when you're thinking about monitoring prairies with 
brome and bluegrass problems, diversity and management is really important. So oh, I have Sarah, a couple just, of big, I know you love me. You just, <laughs> I do. I, that's what yeah. I was going to say. I was just going to say, you know how much I love you right now. I mean, yeah. always, but right now, especially there's a lot of love for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, I have a couple of examples, I guess, to, that I can sort of pull on to, to support that idea of diversity and management. Um, and just one disclaimer is really the projects that I'm pulling from for this were the Grassland Monitoring Team or GMT and then another big adaptive um, GMT is the one that we uh, Marissa and Darren and I were talking about in a previous podcast episode. And then the other project is called Native Prairie Adaptive Management, or we call it NPAM for short. And both of those oh, are big wonderful. grassland adaptive management projects with lots and lots of different offices involved. Um, and the idea of them is to provide... Um, decision support or uh, management recommendations to managers as they're um, managing prairies, but they both are focused on remnant prairie. So I have stories about reconstructions in Rome and bluegrass too, but I'll stick to remnants today. Um, so we've been doing GMT and NPAM for over 10 years, both of them. And, um, you know, like I said, we do give, um, as part of that, managers get um, some management recommendations and some uh, like assistance from the models in making decisions as they're doing their management. But one cool thing about them, too, is after having done them for this long, we have, you know, 10 plus years of data that we can also take and look at in sort of more traditional statistical analysis type ways and start asking other questions of the data and learning things in sort of just different different ways. So couple stories. One is with NPAM. One of the things that we um, built into that project for the Tallgrass was um, this idea that comes from a publication that Wilson and Dick put out in, I think, like 2000 or 2001, so like 20 years ago, that is just ingrained. They have a model in that publication about managing Rome with fire. And this is where, even if you don't realize it, almost all of our managers use this idea of burning when brome is at the three to five leaf stage. And you hear people talk about that a lot. And I bet a lot of them don't even realize that this is the research that that gave them that mental model. Sarah, you um, said, uh, can I just interrupt you? You said three yeah. to five leaf stage. Right. So, um, so for brome phenology, they're, they're, their study or their model that they developed after some research basically said that there is a period in the spring. Um, if you track the phenology and the development of brome, there's a period in the spring when it's the most vulnerable to burning. And that period is called tiller elongation, which is just the botanist term for when the plant is shooting up that stem. Um, and that's the time when it has kind of used up most of its energy. And it's the most difficult for the brome to recover from that fire after that stage. But it's also the timing of burning at that point is also sort of a one-two punch on the brome because it... Um, is also a time that really favors the warm season grasses um, when you burn at that that stage when the brome is in elongation is also a great time to favor warm season grasses it warms up the soil and and then they also don't have that competition of the brome and the thatch um, on the surface and so the warm seasons go crazy but then what that does is it also makes it harder for the brome to recover because they've got extra competition for the whole rest of the growing season so the theory here the model that wilson and steubendick developed is that it's like this magic window of vulnerability for brome that if you can do your fire at that time you're going to have the best um, success at reducing brome and increasing native cover on your prairie so, uh, like I said, that's like ingrained in most of our tall grass prairie managers' minds. They, they, it's almost like not even a question that we think we need to test. It's just part of how we do business, right? Is that that sort of late spring burn is really the best option that we have out there. But what we found was that when we actually tried to nail down that window and find good bookends for how to measure that, what we ended up using was growing degree days or like, um, like they use for corn. Um, and basically just certain, well, I'm not going to try to explain it, but we used growing degree days and could correlate that with the, um, 
development stages of brome throughout the spring. And so, I mean, we really went all out and tried to figure out how to identify when that window is happening. And what we discovered is that um, that window is later than we expected it to be. And it's also shorter than we expected it to be. It sometimes is only like seven to 10 days. Um, Oh, interesting. And um, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, because a lot of the work that Wilson and Steubendick were basing this idea off of was done in Nebraska. So much further south than our prairies. Just logistically speaking, even if you can identify that window, it gets very hard for us to get burns done the later you get in the spring. And especially the further north that you get in the tall grass prairie, um, it, it that that magic window is almost impossible to hit with burns. I mean, logistically, maybe, it's hard to get a burn done in a given year, right? right. So, never mind right. seven to ten days. Yeah. So then that can make it. Um, feel a little maybe disheartening to some managers that, you know, this is the best time. This is when I should be doing my burns, but it's hard to hit it. Um, so I guess kind of the lesson learned for us was um, that you can't just count on that magic timing. Like I said, that's not your silver bullet to fix your prairies that have brome. And you know, a lot of people probably haven't read that paper, but one thing they talk about in there is that the part of the sort of foundation of this concept is um, they sort of preface it by saying in prairies that you can't manage every year, this is what you should do. So when you're limited to really infrequent management, then the timing becomes super important. And I think that still holds true. But um, to me, the that uh that was just a good reminder that we can't just count on that one magic window to be the end all be all. And even if it did work, it's so narrow and so late that we can maybe burn a handful of our prairies, but we've got lots of prairies that need our management attention. So that's one story kind of related to that. I think we um, had a grad student that was working with some of our data for grassland monitoring team, Hugh uh, Ratcliffe. And he, um, took some of our data and looked back at it and um, sort of summarized it in some different ways than what we had been doing. And he was looking at um, the effects of burning specifically on brome and bluegrass, where in GMT, we're just sort of thinking much bigger picture about um, invasive plants. And we don't necessarily... um, analyze and summarize by species, but he was able to do that. So um, one kind of little nugget is that he found that burning fire, prescribed fire does reduce the cover and the frequency of both brome and bluegrass. So like how much of it you see covering the ground when you look straight down at the prairie, but then also how many individual plants out there or how often do you see those plants across the whole prairie? Are they clustered? Is it everywhere? And so he found that our burning programs are reducing both of those measures of brome and bluegrass in the first year after the fire. And then that effect of reduction continues for cover. So like the, the like how much ground are those plants covering? Kind of the robustness of them, I guess, would be a way of thinking about it. Um, that effect of reduction persists for cover, but it doesn't persist for frequency. So what that tells me is we are kind of setting back those plants with our fire, but we're not getting rid of them, which we Mm -hmm. know. But it's a good reminder that they're always hanging out there. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with that idea of um, not trying to depend on this one magical time and maybe limiting the frequency that you can manage. Absolutely. I always talk a lot, Sarah, on the podcast. Sorry, Mike, I'm going to do it again. But I. I always talk about how if you do the same thing over and over again with your management and you expect a different result, it's kind of a measure of insanity. So what you're describing, like burning in this magic window or trying to time stuff just right in these late, late spring burns is wonderful. But then we need to know the next step after that, because you can't continue to run fire through that system every single year for the life of the prairie, because it's going to be at the detriment of something else, whether it's the wildlife that are there, you know, all the way from a skipper up to a prairie chicken or a pheasant or whatever, um, to the plants themselves. And so 
I always ask people like, okay, so after you've done that and you've knocked it back, what is left in the system to fight the battle for you? Do you have those native cool seasons? Do you have that cover there to help fight that frequency? Because you're never going to, like you said, you said it so well, you're not going to get rid of it all. That shouldn't be the goal. The goal isn't to scrub every single brome and Kentucky bluegrass out of the prairie. It's to make sure that the natives are dominant, resilient, and can persist through time Mm -hmm. in their dominance. And so after you hit them with that management, you need the next step. Like, what is the next step I'm going to take after this to make sure I have my cool seasons filling this niche for me? Right. And, you know, I mean, I could go on and on about all the cool little nuggets of information that we're starting to get from looking at these, you know, long-term monitoring data sets. But there are other, I mean, I won't get into it, but we've found out other things like your starting state matters. So how much bromer bluegrass you have out there at the very beginning is going to have just as much influence on how sort of successful it is, your treatment is. Um, And the climate patterns and weather seem to be really having a big influence. We're seeing some differences in treatment effectiveness um, following a wet year compared to a dry year, for example. And I mean, you can just kind of go on and on. Like some treatments seem to be a little bit more effective against Kentucky bluegrass than they are against smooth brome. And then the timing questions. And I mean, that's exactly it, Megan. That's kind of my take home from all of this is that when you start to take all of those things into account, all those different factors that influence how the plant community looks on a prairie, really the best thing you can do is to mix it up. And I mean like the timing of your management and the style of your management and the management tool that you're using and the management frequency that you're using. And I think rather than um, trying to like dig into every little detail and come up with like the perfect prescription, the best thing we can do is to really encourage that approach to our management. And um, that in, you know, if, if you mix it up like that, just like diversity benefits that, you know, diversity is good in all other ways. It's the same thing. You're covering your bases. So you aren't just burning at one time every year and possibly reducing something desirable that is, is trying to grow at that time of year. And, um, yeah, so just like mixing it up seems to really be the answer to being able to, to kind of take into account all these different influencing factors that we have to think about. It can get overwhelming, like like super fast. It can get overwhelming when you start thinking, okay, but there's weather. What was the weather last year? And this one has, this prairie has a little bit more Kentucky bluegrass. And I know that burning is better for Kentucky bluegrass, but it also has some brome. So how do I take that? And it has some dry prairie and it has some wet prairie. And as a manager, it can get very overwhelming. And so that's like my simple answer is mix it up. And if I could offer to for Mike, because as he's listening to this, when Sarah says mix it up, what she means, Mike, is adaptive management. (laughs) The the, the prairie is constantly in a state of change. We need to allow it. Well, we need to allow it to change. And then we need to be ready to adapt with that change. Like we need to give it space to move into its new self and not where, you know, we always hear managers say, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to fail. If you make a mistake, you adapt, you change, you learn from it so that you don't do that again. So there you go, Mike. Adaptive. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Beautiful. Thank you, Sarah. That was, man, she's great, isn't she? Of course she is. That's my friend. I could listen to her talk um, a lot. Yeah, because she's super knowledgeable. She's fun. She's fun. Well, yeah. She's fun and knowledgeable. The best combination. A winning combination. (laughs) She's a scientist, by gummy. (laughs) Fun and factual. That's how we like to be. Okay. So we are going to jump right into Corey Netland, one of our area wildlife managers. He works for the Department of Natural Resources. He covers the New London area of Minnesota. And so we are going to hear a little bit from him. And Mike, I think you'll like this because he first talks about some strategies that he tried that he didn't really like. Mm, He wasn't a big fan of. Yep. And then he adapted, changed it up and improved what he was doing for some better results. He also mentions our favorite yeah. d word diversity diversity <laughs> you need it remember it diversity, diversity. he's a smart guy that Corey. <laughs> he's super smart take it away Corey. 
Hi, my name is Corey Netland. I am Area Wildlife Supervisor for the Minnesota DNR based out of the New London Field Office, uh, covering Candio High, Chippewa, and Meeker Counties. And I'm here today to talk about uh, Brome and Kentucky Bluegrass Management. Uh, trying to keep them at bay within our prairie reconstructions. And the case that I wanted to talk about was the Regal Meadows WMA. This is uh, a unit that's up near the, the small town of Regal, population 34. So I will <laughs> reference it yeah, as uh, next to Painesville, basically, about eight miles west of Painesville, Minnesota. And Regal Meadows is 306 acres, uh, but it's part of a larger complex of Stearns Prairie Heritage, Follies WMA, Tribute WMA, and Burbank WMA. So all together, 3,000 acres of public lands in that area. And it's part of uh, the Glacial Lakes Prairie Core area. A lot of remnant prairie in that area. And we, we did acquire this, this property back in roughly 2010. And there was some old CRP on that that's basically brome grass. <clears throat> and we set to uh, converting that brome grass to natives. And uh, the process was set in motion with uh, working with the Nature Conservancy and their prairie recover recovery specialists. Uh, November of 2012, the first uh, action took place, and that was to mow fire breaks around the unit and uh, to prepare for a, a prescribed burn in the spring, which would burn off that brome, um, get rid of anything that's in the way to so it's able to receive chemical, uh, because that was going to be part of the part of the deal here. It's very very difficult to to impossible to convert brome without using chemicals. So to me, it's a it's an essential item. Uh, once those fire breaks were mowed, literally a day or two after that, a wildfire sparked off of the railroad, uh, basically the entire area that we were looking to burn through in the spring. So, um, uh, convenient. Yeah, it worked out, worked out all right for us. So at that point it was, it was too late in the season to, to look at, uh, applying uh, glyphosate roundup is the the chemical of choice we're not we're not picky here we wanted to get rid of uh, all all vegetation there and start over so fast forward to spring of 2013 and the plan um, which was developed uh, shortly before I started here I started in April of 2013 but uh, the plan was to use one quart per acre of roundup and so they did that and there was no tillage involved. A lot of times my brome conversion projects will have tillage involved, uh, especially on heavier soils. Anyway, the one quart of Roundup, no tillage. And then uh, that spring, it, it was spring drilled by Habitat Forever was the contractor. Um, I'd call it a moderate diversity. I wouldn't necessarily call it high com compared to the standard of what, what I'm doing today. Um, it probably had somewhere in the range of 40 species, just a number of species. Um, first thing we saw after that was, of course, a lot of annual weeds. That's that's to be expected. And I explain this to a lot of people when they're wondering what's wrong with their seeding. It failed. It had to have failed. And um, I'm fairly <laughs> good at identifying seedlings so I can go out and find your partridge pea and um, uh, black-eyed Susans are the easiest ones, but there's there's more b besides that to identify. And it was drilled too, so you can find it coming up in rows. Uh, that's another convenient thing about drilling, is you can point to the rows and say, "Hey, it's right here. It's coming." But in this case, I was just talking to myself, but <laughs> which isn't a common thing. But uh, at, at any rate, um, first year. We did, uh, this is kind of the program that was done for many, many years uh, up to about that point. Basically, you you go in and you spring drill in May and you come back and you mow it two to three times that year. And you just don't think about it whatsoever until the following year. And maybe you, maybe you clip uh, additional times that second year, or maybe it's not required. But that was basically the program for restoring native grasses up to about 2010, 12, right? in that range and I, I do things a little bit differently now but um, we did see in the the following year in 2014 a, a, a good flush of or a bad flush if you will of uh, sweet mm -hmm. clover 
sweet clover, red clover, and of course the brome was coming back. And I attribute that largely to uh, too low of rates on the on the glyphosate. Um, I like to go with two quarts per acre at least once, maybe even twice if I have that luxury. Um, you know, give it time to to resprout, I guess, between the second the second, the first and second, uh, application, but, um, I don't think there's much of a good substitute for doing it right on the, on the front end, but we have been trying to make up for that ever since. So 2015. And this is all your, Corey, this is all your pre-plant site prep that you're describing here. Right, right. Yep. Yep. Pre-planting. Um, I like to make sure we have a good kill on the brome with, with chemical. Um, tillage alone is, is definitely not going to do it. Uh, it's, um, but, but even at that, um, you know, the, the tillage aspect of it, there's, there's a lot of variation in that too. If, if I'm doing a brome conversion, um, I have a good local contractor here that has a very big, heavy disc, and he'll run two passes with that, two passes with a medium-sized disc, and two passes with a finishing disc. So by the time it's done, it looks like a, a sandbox or a field ready to receive sugar beets or something. It's It looks fantastic. Um, so in other cases where we are doing tillage, that's, that's the route I like to go. And it's, you know, 25 to $35 per pass. It gets expensive, but, um, to me, that's money that's well worth the investment to get that on the front end. Um, but yeah, we, we basically saw some annual weeds, sweet clover, red clover, brome, things like that through 2015 and 16. And then in uh, 2017, uh, late winter, I guess it'd be. So I think it was in uh, March of 17, we got grazing fence installed all around the exterior of this unit, along with Stearns Prairie Heritage, which was managed by the Sauk Rapids office, but it was a cooperative project because they're adjacent units. So we fenced in 525 acres and we did graze the south half of this brome field that I'm referencing, which is an 80 acre field. Um, in that first year. And it, and it definitely, it was, the timing was, uh, May 15th through June 15th. And it, and it did set back both the, the, the red clover and the brome. Um, and how many cows did you have in there? Just out of curiosity. I believe it was 50 cow calf pairs. Okay. And and it was more than, so I said we we grazed the south half, but that that'd be roughly forty acres. But there was another forty acres that's part of another field that was that was restored um, uh, at a different time. So they were, they were on eighty acres, and I, yeah, good response out of that. But that's a one year one year deal. So then in two thousand and eighteen, uh, we we did conduct a prescribed burn on that entire eighty that had the the brome conversion on it, uh, learn some things <laughs> about burning with uh, exterior mm-hmm. grazing fence. That's something we hadn't done before, but we learned some things out of that, but we also did after that, uh, graze part of that, that would be the North half of that. So it was kind of, kind of like a patch burn graze type thing where we, mm-hmm. we burned that off, but then we, we had 80 acres fenced in, but only 40 of it was the part that was burned. Well, they definitely concentrated on that 40 acres and the timing was the same. It was, it was a little bit later. I think it was a full month of June, I want to say, because things had to, to get, get going after that fire. Um, but an even better response on that when we had the two different management techniques there working in tandem, both the fire and then the, the grazing following up that. So to even even fast forward to today, I, I think that north half looks better than the south half, but there's there's not a great discrepancy, but we're a couple of years removed from that. And by this spring, we'll be three years removed from it. So, so right now, Corey, your recipe is um, that you followed here was was disking, uh, chemical, fire and grazing all. Am I following that right? It, it would be my preferred method, but we did not do any disking on this one. What I'm basically highlighting is that I think we 
we could have done better to avoid this Brome situation if we would have done it right on the on the front end. And, and to me, that that's really my take home message is that if, it, if it's a Brome conversion project, there is mm-hmm. no substitute from doing it right from at your first your first option, you know. Gotcha. Now we're, we're left uh, trying to address this problem with ongoing management, whereas it, I don't believe it had to be that way if we would have uh, done this properly from the beginning. Corey, will you summarize for me just quickly here? So doing it right, you've mentioned that a couple times. What is the recipe for doing it right? And I know everybody who's listening, they're like, uh-oh, she's talking recipes, and she always tells us not to use recipes. That's right, Megan. So, quick, quick caveat, every piece of land is different, and you need to be adapting, but this is just a, a guide of what Corey believes would have worked on this site better. So caveats. Go ahead, Corey. Sure. And I, so on this site, we'll just assume that that wildfire had happened uh, as it did in November of 12. So ideally in the spring, it's going to it's going to green up uh, fairly early on that field due to being blackened already, uh, getting some mm-hmm. some additional heat out there and the nutrients that are that are being cycled back in. So, um, you know, I think it, we'd be able to spray Roundup fairly early and I would have went with two quarts um, per acre on that. And then due to that being, being so early, I think, uh, we'd have, we'd have probably had time to wait it out for another month and possibly get a second round of two quarts per acre. If, if necessary, if it resprouted, if, if we're not seeing anything come back, then we, uh, we got it good. So that's part of the adaptive management right there is that, uh, we may or may not need that second application, you know, when it's, already burned off and we're sure that everything that's alive has sprouted and is up and we sprayed it with roundup we, and it's and it's also very short uh we we may not need that second round but it's uh if needed the second round um in this case i, do, I don't think i ever i don't think tillage was necessary um okay. like, I, like i said on other sites i think uh you know if it's heavier soils that are that are going to be more productive cropland um you know if they're more productive for cropland they're also more productive for for brome and and annual weeds so i have the easiest time restoring something that it's just completely sand uh the weed competition just isn't there and and it and it takes off uh, much much more readily so um yeah, so I, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't have necess- I don't think tillage was the thing that that was lacking. I would say that it was the um, the rate of the chemical is what was done um, too low rate in this case. So. Gotcha. And how do you, so when you use tillage, how do you account? We often talk about how tillage is like setting off a bomb in the soil. You know, it breaks the structure down. It makes all the microbes go away. It essentially, it it has some, it makes it look nice and fluffy on top, but your structure is essentially destroyed below ground. How, have you had any projects where you're dealing with this persistent brome conversion or Kentucky bluegrass conversion where after you do the tillage, you know, to try to disturb the those roots and everything. Is there anything like a temporary cover or something that you're adding in there to try to boost that soil system and structure back up? Yes, exactly. That's um, that's the exact way that I've gone about it is to actually have a, um, a cover crop cocktail, if you will. I like to have uh, diversity in there, not just straight uh, straight oats or something, for example, but try to have a, a mix of, of things. And then um, maybe maybe have that all all season long and then terminate it and and do a dormant seeding perhaps and and that by terminated i mean it's uh using chemical again so um you know that that's uh something that right, right now it's i think oats is all i could get a hold of for out on benderberg wma so we we just have oats on 64 acres there but basically that's what we did on in that case is to um, we did do the tillage and, and then, um, I didn't, I didn't have the seed, uh, seed availability is a whole nother deal, but, um, we didn't, we didn't have it this year, but, but I also had another issue there that, um, 
even if I had the seed, I would not have been comfortable using it because they had used, I think it was Flexstar within 12 months. Uh, so there's herbicide carryover. Right. Carryover <laughs> and residual uh, impacts where, you know, even 10 years ago, we didn't really think much about that or maybe know a great deal. Plus those, those chemicals just weren't on the landscape like they are now. So all new acquisitions, I definitely ask for a, a three-year chemical use history from the landowner or renter. And um, it, it, at least half of the time, maybe more than that, now we have some stuff in there that just will not allow us to, to be able to restore uh, prairie at this time, we got to use the cover crop. Um, main reason being that those residuals will impact the, the forb expression and growth on those, uh, those units. And we're, we're spending way too much on seed to be able to put it in the ground and have it not grow. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Wonderful. I love what you said about doing it right. So you gave us the, I like how you gave us the example where you're like, this is how I learned. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I tried this, we did this. I didn't like it. This is yeah. how I would do it differently. And this is how we're adapting with it now. That's, I think that's a really good story. And Mike, I was chuckling when you were like, okay, so you use this tool, this tool, this tool, and this tool. Right. And that's, <laughs> I, I mean, sometimes you just, that's what it is. You need all those tools in the toolbox. And I, the, what struck me too is that really you're killing the above ground expression of the brome, but the goal is really to damage the roots. And so whether you use chemical or cows or mechanical means to do that, then you have to deal with what you have left. So depending on what tool you use to make that happen, just like you said, then you might need to build your soil structure back or you might need to delay a season before you plant. There's all kinds of like calculations that you're making as a manager. It's impressive. It is impressive. Well, in, in this case, too, that the grazing is actually part of that building the soil back. Uh, sure. Component, you know, so that's we didn't use the tillage, but yet, uh, you know, this this soil was uh, farmed for many years and then it was into Brome CRP mm. for many years. It's not it's not what we would like to see in a in a it's it's not close to what a what a remnant prairie is as far as microbe activity and things like that. And it's not not probably even what we'd like to see in a reconstructed prairie to this point, but the, incorporating the grazing into it um, has, has been a good thing for us. And I'm working with a guy that's, uh, he's an organic operator. So he's got uh, organic cattle too. And um, they've been very cooperative and they also have, uh, my grazing plan has an option in there where each paddock is divided into four sub paddocks and you could potentially graze on each one for a week and then shift them to the next one. And they're, they're willing to, to explore that as an option. We haven't gone down that road yet, but I would like to see, um, you know, that we'd, we'd get more, more diversity out of that in terms of the, the, the height structure and, and, uh, you know, just the expression of plants too, you know, you graze it, uh, hard in one area for a week and then move them on. We're going to have, we're going to have more variety out there, um, than we would otherwise just by having them have free reign over all 40 acres. If they're doing 10 at a time, it's, it's, I'm excited to give that a whirl. That sounds cool. Nice. Thank you, Corey. That was wonderful. Just like all of our guests, it was fantastic. And I know that Mike was extra appreciative of the adaptive management focus. And we just want to do a quick yes. reminder for our listeners to remember, because there was some herbicide mm -hmm. context and, and offerings in there, that it is very important that you always read and follow all label instructions and restrictions. And yes. if possible, you might need a pesticide applicator's license to handle some of these products. So just make sure you're safe out there and following yep. your proper protocols for personal protective equipment. I wish there was a P word in front of equipment, but uh, I don't That's unnecessary. Have equipment. So that you can make sure you're safe because that's important to I us. Just, I, I appreciate Corey's on the ground, very applied, practical experience. A prime example of, of the experience and the wisdom of some of our managers, I think, right? The quality. That's the word you're looking for, Mike. Quality, that too. Okay. Prairie grows them excellent down here. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all of our guests aren't just from down here, but we're doing a fine job in Minnesota, mm. I feel like, and we're featuring some, some folks who are doing really fantastic work. 
and asking good questions. Speaking of folks who are doing fantastic work and asking good questions, like many of you know, prairie and prairie conservation, it takes a village right? Mm-hmm. It's a partnership. We talk about that all the time. In order to meet our mutual goals, we are going to have to work together across our agencies, across our organizations, and most importantly, across our land borders. So Dan Shaw is a senior ecologist and vegetation specialist with the Board of Water and Soil Resources. And he is going to talk about some things that they're doing on farm at their family farm. It's actually located in Wisconsin for prairie conservation. And one of the things I love that he mentions is he talks about how they accomplish some of the management. And it really just sounds like the way we do a lot of things in the rural parts of the world, right? You call your neighbor, you get a bunch of folks together, and you make sure that you feed them after. So you you work hard, you get some laughter in, you play hard, and then you make sure you get fed. Important parts of conservation that we don't often talk about. And he mentions butterflies. So, yeah, he definitely talks about how this is important. You know, it's for, it's important for the entire community, right? The entire prairie system. But there are certain things we can do to enhance host plants or other connections to make sure that our smallest wildlife is thought of and taken care of. Good to be with you all. I'm Dan Shaw with the Board of Water and Soil Resources, a state agency in Minnesota. Uh, So I've been working there for the last 13 years. I've also worked for restoration companies, native plant, nurseries, nonprofit organizations doing restoration. Uh, So I've been doing restoration work for about 25 years. Aren't you like the ecologist for the Board of Water and Soil Resources? Yeah, I'm the one person with the title ecologist for the agency. (laughs) Very nice. Title to have. You bet. Fellow ecologists, stay together. Okay, anyway, sorry. I was going down a road, but... (laughs) (laughs) Ecologists love there. Share with us some of this 25 years of experience that you have. Talk to us a little bit about smooth brome, Kentucky bluegrass. What, What are you seeing? What are you learning? Well, I've been uh, fortunate to be able to work on a lot of different types of projects across the Midwest. We do a lot of wetland restoration with our agency, but we also have different conservation programs. Our RIM program uh, restores many acres every year. Um, I coordinate, coordinate a couple other programs. We have a cooperative weed management area program that is focused on forming partnerships to address invasive species across geographic areas. Um, So we're always looking for innovative ways to manage invasive species. Um, In the case of Brome and Kentucky bluegrass, they definitely seem to have a competitive advantage right now with our increasing precipitation, uh, nitrogen deposition, early springs. They're all things that those grasses really like, and they seem to be on the increase in many of our landscapes. Um, I think, you know, one key thing I wanted to stress is patience. I I think when I started at the agency and managing projects, I I was pretty uneasy about a lot of our sites, that they weren't on track right away. We had invasive plants coming in, and, you know, over time, some of these landscapes tend to adjust, and they seem to kind of work with us in some ways that the nitrogen levels and nutrient levels decrease a bit in some of these sites over time. Mm. Um, So that can help us in managing some of these invasive plants. I think, uh, you know, one other, uh, I just want to interject here. It sounds like what you're saying is, is that nature has an inherent ability to sort of heal itself. If we give it the time to do that, as long as we've given it the tools and the structure and the pieces, you know, as we're, as we're searching to build this stuff back, it sounds like to me, you're describing it's fixing the broken nitrogen cycle, fixing the broken carbon cycle through time as those, I'm assuming they're diverse, you know, plantings are kind of recovering, if you will, on the landscape. Yeah, that's correct. And and the soil health is a big part of it, too. It's not always just about the vegetation. You know, we've been using cover crops and other methods to rebuild the soil health before we do some of our seeding on sites. And we, we think that's helping kind of skip some successional stages that are weedy. 
And so if we can get the soils in good health, it's probably going to favor our native vegetation over some of the weeds. And then that's going to provide some long-term benefits. I love when you talk about soil health. <laughs> these are money words on the podcast. All right, go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, soil health is something that's, I think, an emerging topic in restoration. I think we're just starting to understand it, understand all of the microbes that are involved with these prairies and other ecosystems. So something that we're pretty excited about, um, learning more about, figuring out how we can better help those bugs that provide so many benefits in the soil. I love that. That needs to be a bumper sticker. Better help those bugs. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, go ahead. And I, you know, one other thing I wanted to talk a bit about was just the fact that our, our landscapes, you know, they don't have to be pristine. We, I think we, we tend to have this idea that, you know, we're going to create these super highly diverse landscapes and that's our ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And we're always working to get there. But uh, for landowners, it can be pretty nerve wracking, you know, when they have invasive plants moving in to their landscapes, you know, and, and it's true when we see, you know, remnant prairies with uh, invasive ex- expanding, we get really concerned. But, you know, uh, with everything that we're dealing with, with climate change and all of the impacts in our environment, you know, we're all working towards similar goals. But, I, you know, again, it goes back to the patients. You know, we're, we're not... Uh, we can't necessarily solve all the issues on these sites. And, you know, through our partnerships that we're forming, we're doing a really good job, I think, um, figuring out best practices and figuring out how to work together on sites. So you're saying, sounds like to me that you're saying, um, <clears throat> don't let the perfect get in the way of the good uh, when it comes to management, right? And, and we're, our ultimate goal is is our different functions when it comes to these prairies, you know, pro- uh, providing wildlife habitat, protecting water quality, storing water, uh, storing carbon, and so forth. And if we're if we're doing that, we're doing some good, right? And and so the the the, the goal in my mind is to battle the invasives to the extent that they prevent us from doing those things. Um, does that seem like a good philosophy to you, Dan? Yeah. Megan, you had something else you're going to add? I was going to add two quick things. So the first Thanks for being thing, a host, interjecting and being a host there, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was just going to add two quick things. The one thing is that your goals might be different depending on who you are. So those are our goals in terms of building a resilient, functioning, connected prairie landscape across Minnesota. But those might not be your individual goals for your site. And so it's very, very important that you define what those are so that you have a metric where you can actually measure success and say, okay, I really wanted pollinator habitat. All right. Well, for which pollinators? There's there's thousands of those, those guys. So you need to be clear with yourself so that you can set reasonable expectations with what you're trying to do. So Mike, you're right. Those are, those are certainly our goals for this bigger landscape and the functionality, but they might not be an individual person at an individual level. It might not, those might not be their goals. And then the second thing I was going to say is that I think in order to make sure that we are funneling into those larger goals. We need to make sure that the natives are dominant. And so you're absolutely right. Like fight the invasives to the point that we have these functions, but a key part of that is making sure that the natives are dominant. If you're setting out to destroy every single blade of Rome or Kentucky bluegrass or whatever, name your pick your poison here, whatever invasive species it is, that's not a great goal. Because you're going to fail. You're never going to fully eradicate it. And you're going to eventually do more harm than good to the to the whole of the prairie. So you need to sort of adjust your expectations a little bit and get natives dominant. That's that's one of our, our measures for how we get all of those functions that Mike's talking about. Makes sense. That's all. Yep, I, I agree. <laughs> um, I think with our, our family farm, you know, I, I think it's a good example of uh, looking at goals for different areas. Uh, we converted the cornfields and hayfields into prairie um, probably like 15 years ago. And some of the areas are 
really highly diverse. Other areas, not as diverse. Um, you know, they're meeting the requirements of CRP, but we're always trying to increase diversity into them. Been using prescribed burning a lot because the brown grass and Kentucky bluegrass didn't all disappear when we uh, did the conversion. And that's not uncommon for fields that were in hay fields um, before. And so the, the burning has been helping a lot. Uh, we actually have community prescribed burns where neighbors and family and colleagues come and burn. Sometimes we'll have 40 to 50 people out there doing these burns. And then they'll move on to another property and, and do burns. So it's been a good opportunity to do burns about every three years or so. And so it's, it's been a good opportunity for me to watch these prairies and see how they change over time with the percent of brome and uh, Kentucky bluegrass. Uh, really, I think the timing of the burns has been important where we've burned too early. Sometimes it really doesn't stress those grasses very much because they're not mm -hmm. green. It may actually be fertilizing them a little bit. <laughs> so the timing is an important thing. And then the burning sometimes can really help the warm season grasses like the big blue stem and the Indian grass, maybe more than some of the forbs. And so we've been trying mm -hmm. to uh, do some seed collection and, and spreading of seed in different areas. Uh, this uh, farm is in central Wisconsin and we have kind of blue butterflies on this farm too. Oh. So we've been trying to think about the management for those butterflies. And so we don't actually burn as much in those areas. I'm actually out there with a mattock sometimes uh, getting clumps of grasses that are just starting to keep them from spreading. Um, so looking at different management methods in different areas, depending on what the goals are. Um, and so, I, you know, it's been a good learning opportunity whenever you can be at a site so much and really see it change over time. Nice. When you say you're, you're collecting some seed, are you trying to collect some of those early season species, like early season natives, so that way you can kind of fill in as you impact the brome or the Kentucky bluegrass? You're also trying to spread and expand and make sure that the natives that are going to fight that battle for you are spreading in the system. Are you basically giving them a boost or what, what are you doing when you're collecting seed? What's your goals? Yeah. yeah, really it is collecting through the season and then storing that seed and then dispersing that seed out. Uh, usually late fall, you know, we might do it after a spring burn as well. The lupine seed is one that we're, trying to get in different areas of the farm to create, you know, a stronger population of carnivore blue butterflies. Um, so we really focus in on collecting seed of that species, finding spots that are really good niche for them to grow. And then, and then passing some of that seed on to neighbors as well so that they can do some seeding and hopefully create a bigger network of habitat through the neighborhood. For the folks who may not realize this, when you say lupin or lupine, as you say, that must be the Wisconsin way to say it. I'm going to uh, say that from now on, lupine. Oh, okay, lupine. I like it. It's nice. It's like a tiny pine tree of purple flowers. <laughs> I love it. So anyway... This is a host plant for the Carner Blue Butterfly. So for folks who, who might not have made that connection there, so the adults feed on the nectar of flowering plants, and then the caterpillars only feed on the leaves of the lupin or lupine, depending on who you are. So they, uh, they need that plant for their survival. Not all uh, Lepidoptera, butterflies, and moss need host plants. Some can use lots of different plants, but in the case of the carnivore blue butterfly, they really need lupin in order to persist. And so you're trying to manage specifically for the carnivore blue by expanding caterpillar food for them. I just, Dan, I want to, I want to commend you and your family on, on managing. I mean, well, first of all, I'm very jealous and probably many Minnesotans are jealous of the fact that you have carnivore blues on your property. But, um, to me, this drives home the point that maybe this is off topic. It drives home the importance of private lands when it comes to prairie conservation. Like here, you, here you guys have this really highly threatened species on your property, and you're helping it persist. And um, so, nice work, nice job there. And helping the yeah. neighbors, you've basically developed a, a a miniature. Not only have you developed. <laughs> Like a roving crew of your own for people like a miniature, to burn. Like a miniature prairie plan? <laughs> yeah, like it, it kind of. I was going to say a, a little cooperative there. You've got a seed cooperative where you're sharing seed and a, a nice little seed sharing 
exchange there. And then you've also got uh, like a prairie enthusiast chapter in the works there just through your neighbors. Are you feeding these people when they're coming and burning your site? Or how that, that was the first, I mean, if they say something about me, that was the first thing I thought about. <laughs> I, don't know, I was are like, are, is there a hog roast as part of this? Because I can see some Wisconsin farm travel in my future. So. <laughs> they're potlucks. So everybody brings a dish. And uh, so after all the burning is done, then everybody eats and drinks. And so it turns into a party after after the burn. I knew it. Sounds fun. Yeah. Does sound fun. <laughs> but, you know, I think for any landowner that has prairie, you know, I think it's important to think about partnerships and finding ways to find assistance. There's a lot of people passionate about prairies and biodiversity out there. You know, so I think there's opportunities to kind of build these networks. Um, you know, in, in our case, my dad was a natural resource professor and we had this network of like-minded people. Um, but, you know, throughout the Midwest, there's really passionate people. There's, there's, you know, groups like the prairie enthusiasts, wild ones that are all very interested in um, working with, with landowners. So there, I think there's maybe more opportunities out there for these kinds of partnerships. Excellent I love point. that you mentioned partnerships because the whole reason why this podcast exists is because we wanted to showcase the partnership and the work that's being done for prairie conservation and how it's no one single individual. Everybody can take part in this. How do you become part of the prairie plan is a question people often ask me. And I just say, plant a seed. It's that simple. Like plant a seed, talk to somebody about how important prairie is and you are taking part in a, a whole cooperative of people that you hear on this podcast over the seasons, over the different episodes who are passionate, like Dan said, about prairie and who are working together in many cases to help the prairie persist. How many P words did I get in there? Bonus points. Well done. Well done, Megan. <laughs> that Dan Shaw, he's fantastic. And I that love was, that, that was he a good, it. That was a good note to end on. It was a good note to end on because I love that it tied it all together with the partnership piece. They're really not going to meet our goals, whether it's on farm, on our personal private property, or on our public lands without partnership and making sure there's diversity in our partnerships too. It can't be just the same folks out there. We've got to make sure that we're really doing a good job of being connected across everybody who's contributing to the wholeness, wholeness and wellness of the prairie landscape. Wholeness? Is that a word? Absolutely. It's a word. Um, I've got a lot of good out of these two episodes. I'm glad we did them. Me too. And, and I, I hope that I hope the listeners, listeners feel the same way. Oh, yeah. gosh, we're getting so good at this. Oh, that you're in my brain. Kind of, wow. It's, that kind was, of, it's kind of spooky. Oh, that was beautiful, Mike. I'm Together, not sure I'm comfortable with it. <laughs> Together we're better. Connected Please. Mike and Megan for the prairie. It's not scary. Okay. <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. As always, you can find all of the resources we talked about on this episode on our website, mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. The lyrics to these original songs are the proprietary to Megan Benich. You are welcome. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. We're going to be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming and formatting where we are going to be talking about the legacy of restoration in Minnesota. We've got fabulous guests, as we always do. Dr. Sue Galatowicz was Mike's instructor. Former professor. Yep. She she doesn't remember me. Either means he was a really bad student and she doesn't want to remember it. He was really great and unremarkable. <laughs> That's contradictory, but yeah, she didn't oh, remember just me. Kidding. Yep. So she it, it was a great class, and she was a great professor. So I'm, it, it will be a great episode, and she yes. still is. And she's mm-hmm. going to be joined by another student of hers, now graduated and moved on to contribute to the field of prairie rest- restoration. 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 Gina Queerum is the Minnesota DNR's restoration evaluation specialist, and she is going to be with us as well because their program is responsible for evaluating evaluating the success of restorations across the state of Minnesota. So we are going to learn some common mistakes, some lessons, and hopefully 
give you a pretty positive message about the future of restoration in Minnesota. Key tagline, don't be afraid to try new things. We learn from failure. Philosophy that I live by. I was going to say something about you, <laughs> but then I was like, no, I'll just, I'll just, I just won't. I think we both live by it. You can't be afraid to fail. That's how you adapt and improve and get better at life. And at Prairie Conservation, it's a journey. It's a journey. It's got billions of organisms in it, so we're not going to do everything right the first time. We're constantly learning. All right. We will catch you next week. Bye, friends. Bye, Prairie Pete. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.